0: following content is derived from the preaching ministry of Ashland Avenue Baptist Church in Oldham County, Kentucky, and is reproduced here for the benefit of its members. We exist to treasure and spread a passion for the supremacy of Christ in all things for the joy of all peoples, and we pray that God's grace among us would spread beyond us to the benefit of anyone who happens to listen. For more information about our church, go to ashlandoc.org. Thanks for listening. Please open your Bibles this morning to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, we're going to be looking this morning at the Spirit-filled church from Acts chapter 2 verses 40 through 47, and as you find that... um, I want to invite you to stand again in reverence for the reading of God's perfect and precious word. Acts 2, beginning in verse 40. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and There were added that day about three thousand souls and they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers and all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together and had all things in common. We thank You for revealing Yourself to us in Your Word. And and Lord, we thank You for revealing Yourself to us ultimately in Your Son, Jesus Christ. As we have sung this morning, God, we gather to declare all we have is Christ. When everything else falls away, when this life ends, And there are no more earthly possessions to cling to. There is no more money to love. At that moment, we will see so clearly that all we have and all we need is Christ. I pray that you would help us see that even now through the preaching of your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I was born in 1981. According to so-called experts, that makes me a millennial. Because the year that these so-called experts decided that millennials begin is the year 1981. So I just want to stand here before you and tell you that I am not a millennial. I don't care what the experts say. One of my favorite songwriters is a country singer by the name of Jason Isbell, and I like to tell people that, in, a, in the words of a song that he wrote, I'm the last of my kind, if you think I'm a millennial. Well, sociologists like to study generations. This is something that happens. And they group people based on this, and, and that's how we get these ideas that you belong to the boomer generation, or you're a Gen Xer, or you're a millennial and, and what they're recognizing is something that's really actually true and profound, and, and it's that we are all shaped by certain unique cultural factors. We, we have shared characteristics. You can take a generation of people, and you can group them together in some ways and, and, and observe things about them because of things they've experienced. This can be a really helpful thing. It's just simply the observation that none of us live isolated in a bubble. We are part of something bigger, and even if we're not trying to, we typically will view the world in much the same way as the people around us view the world. People who grew up around us and experienced the same things that we experienced. We have shared experiences. You have boomers. We. We recognize that that's the post World War II generation, that they experienced the optimism coming out of World War II. They also experienced the sexual revolution and, and the Cold War, and those things that they shared together give them certain characteristics. Some of you are boomers. Gen Xers. Sometimes Gen Xers are called the latchkey generation because. That was the first generation where the majority of Americans' parents were both working outside of the home. And so the Gen Xers typically spent a lot of time at home by themselves. And then the Millennials. Millennials who it came about during the technological explosions of the Internet and also 9-11. These things shaped their experience. And in many ways, every single one of us thinks about the world in certain ways because of things that we've experienced in the world, because of things that we've lived through. That's not something we necessarily have to try to do. And what's interesting is when we open up the book of Acts and we begin reading in chapter 2, verse 40, Peter also is acknowledging this tendency. Look at these words in verse 40. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Now we looked at Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8 last week, and we saw that Jesus, in these last words that he gave to his apostles, told his followers that You've been given a mission. You are going to go to the end of the earth. I am going to give you power, and you are going to bear witness about me. You are to go tell the world that I am the king. And so that's the mission that the apostles receive. But that, that promise of power was still future. And if we, if we keep reading in Acts, we get to Acts chapter 2, and we see the power comes. The Holy Spirit comes upon them. They receive the power on the day of Pentecost, gathered in Jerusalem, and and, and they begin to speak the gospel, and there are nations gathered there. And it's crazy because the nations begin to hear the message of the gospel in their own language, even though these men were not learned and did not know these languages. And then Peter begins to preach. And we get his whole sermon. In fact, where we're picking up in verse 40, that is the very end of his sermon. And what he acknowledges in verse 40 is this thing that I've already pointed out, this reality that we are part of something bigger, that we are participants in a generation, in a culture. And Peter here says that there's something crooked about that generation, about that culture that we are participants in. With many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Crooked. It's interesting because when we, we read the prophets in the Old Testament, one of the prophecies that they continually claimed about Jesus was that he was going to come and make the paths to God straight. Contrast that with the crookedness of this generation how, how the generations, the cultures that we're part of, obscure the pathway to God. They lie about who God is. You will not find God just in this generation. Paul spoke of the same thing using different language in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, when he said that all of us used to follow the course of this world. There is a course that this world follows, and Paul tells us very clearly in Ephesians that it leads to death. But Peter says there's hope. Verse 41. So those who received. His word, those who received the gospel, those who received the good news about the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ, those who received, who believed, it, who repented and believed, they were baptized and there were added that day about 3000 souls. Peter says there is a way for you to break from this crooked generation. There's a way for you to receive the promised Holy Spirit that Peter promised in verse 38. Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That you don't have to merely be a part of a crooked generation that leads to death but that God in Christ promises us that if we will repent and believe, we will no longer be ruled by the Spirit of the age, but we will now and forever be ruled by the Spirit of the living God. Church, that's our hope. Jesus wants you to know, He wants us to know this morning that there is a new way to be human. That there is a new approach to life. That the pathways that lead to destruction and death and misery and depression no longer have to be the pathways that you travel down. Jesus comes to proclaim a new way, a way to God, a way to flourishing, a way to salvation, a way of grace and mercy and love and peace. And you're invited to be a part of it. It's a drastic transformation. And then immediately, in verses 42 through 47, we get a powerful picture of what it looks like to live as part of such a culture. What does it mean to be spirit filled, living in this new way that Jesus has brought? To us, and, and what we notice here is that this isn't, God, this isn't how God does it. God doesn't just come and pluck individuals out of the world and say, hey, I'm going to put you over here and you over there and you over here and you guys are just going to live holy lives in your little bubbles. That's not what he does at all. But God in Christ comes and saves a people and He gathers us together and He calls us the church. And He says you are now going to live in your own unique culture with your own unique values. It's the only way to do it. You know what this is right here, church? See, some of you here this morning are like, man, we got up, we went to church. What is church? Well, it's a worship service. Yeah, certainly is that but it's so much more than we even recognize on a given Sunday morning. You realize that? You know, you wouldn't be here if it weren't for the Spirit of God. There's no reason for us to do this unless Jesus Christ conquered the grave by His death and resurrection. You know what this is? This is a pilot plant where God, ahead of time, is going to show the world what His kingdom looks like before Jesus returns and ultimately inaugurates it. Think about that. You are part of the pilot plant. We get to live out the kingdom of Christ in this present evil age before the kingdom of Christ takes over everything. So that people who are a part of this crooked generation will be able to look in here at what we have and say, we have to be a part of that. Those people have something and we need it. Those people are showing us the way to Christ. Our obedience to the call of Christ in Acts 1, 6-8, where we're to be witnesses to the end of the earth, our obedience to that call is inseparable from our, our, our identity of living as the Spirit-filled church of the Lord Jesus Christ, His body on this earth. And so this is what we're going to do with this passage this morning. I just want to simply point out four characteristics of the Spirit-filled church that we get From Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And I hope that it makes sense to you why we're doing it that way, because I want us to be a spirit filled church. Like, if we're not a spirit filled church, then close it down. That there's no other reason for us to exist unless we're filled by the Holy Spirit of God doing His work in Jesus Christ. It's not about any other thing. We're not here to just preserve conservative moral values or whatever other thing that people think we're doing here. We are here to be filled by the Holy Spirit so that the gospel will go to the end of the earth, including our own community, our own families. So, what are those four characteristics of a spirit filled church? The first one is theological depth. Theological depth. Now, sometimes I think this surprises people because we think, well, you're talking about the Spirit, and now you're talking about theology, and we tend to think that like the Spirit is over here and theology is over here, and to the degree that theology invades, the Spirit gets pushed out because you can't be committed to learning and be dependent upon the Holy Spirit at the same time, can you? Well, yes. I've had people ask me before, do you prepare your sermon or do you just get up there and talk? Like, seriously? But the, the, the implication behind that is there's an assumption that if I actually prepare for whatever reason, I'm not relying on the Spirit. Like, I, the only way to rely on the Spirit is to be like spontaneous and free. Listen to me. You do not want me spontaneous and free. You just don't want that. Those of you who know me well, know you don't want that. But listen, a commitment to learning does not hinder reliance on the Spirit. In fact, I would say that a refusal to commit to learning indicates a lack of reliance on the Spirit. Because it is the Spirit who reveals the Word. And this view is That learning in the Spirit are contrary to odds of one another. is completely contrary to the entirety of the Bible. Do you know how much the apostles knew the Scriptures from the Old Testament? Do you know how much they studied God's Word? And you see that here in this very first characteristic that's mentioned, verse 42. And they, this very first church in Jerusalem, this is the first church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves. They made a commitment to learning the teaching of the apostles. They made a commitment to studying the teaching of the apostles, to growing in knowledge with the intention of living out the knowledge that they were gaining and growing in. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. We have that teaching still today, by the way. These books of the New Testament. The apostles' teaching is now canonized for us so that we can continue to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching. And then he says in the fellowship, we're going to get to these other things in a moment. They they also devoted themselves to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, the prayers. And then in verse 43, and I think that we need to be careful that we connect verse 43 to verse 42, because I think they're tied together and all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. There's wonders and signs. There's awe. They're, they're, they're obeying the teaching of the apostles, and there's crazy things happening. There's people being healed. There's people being saved. There's dead people being raised. There's blind people seeing. There's lame people walking. And I think sometimes we read things like this and we go, Well, I don't see that happening at your church service. Why isn't that happening there? And it could. I just want you to know that. I mean, God can do whatever He wants. And if He wants to begin healing people right here and now, He will. But I think sometimes we have this tendency of reading the Bible and seeing things and thinking that history is like a flat line, that that nothing ever changes. And so the Spirit-filled church, if we're really Spirit-filled, we'll have the same signs and wonders happening here that were happening there. And I just want you to understand that that's never been the way God does it. If you want to understand the role of signs and wonders in God's plan, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 is a great place to look. And and I'm just going to read it for you. You don't have to turn there, but in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, this is what we read. It was declared, and what it is here is salvation. Salvation was declared at first by the Lord, by Jesus. And it was attested to us by those who heard, the apostles, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. So what we have going on in Acts is what we see going on throughout salvation history. When God breaks into history with new revelation, He bears witness to that revelation by means of signs and wonders and miracles. You saw it happen in Exodus. God revealed a new plan. He gave the law to Moses at Sinai. What goes along with this new revelation? Signs and wonders. You see it happening in the age of the prophets where Elijah comes and, and God begins giving a new revelation through the prophets before the exile that the exile's coming. And what does God do through Elijah? He begins to perform miracles and signs and wonders to bear witness about that new revelation. And so, what do we see happening in Acts? We have received the gospel, we in Acts have now received the fullness of God's revelation. And so what do we expect? Well, God breaks in and bears witness to the truth of this revelation by signs and wonders through the apostles. That doesn't mean that we're always going to see the same thing. It doesn't mean we're not. But this is what we should expect. The point that I want to walk away with from this first characteristic is simply this. Since the beginning, the church has devoted herself, the bride of Christ has devoted herself to deep study of the revelation that God has revealed about Himself, about Jesus Christ through the apostles. And that's always been the case. And we likewise need to be such people. We do not need to be committed to some perceived spiritual state of anti-intellectualism to be a Christian. That's not how it works. We are people of the book. We study God's Word. Because listen to me, church. The only way that you are going to live in the midst of this crooked generation and not be led astray by its lies is if you are grounded in the Word of God. It's the only way. I promise you there's no other way. The news is not going to keep you grounded in the truth. Instagram, Facebook, whatever, it's not going to keep you grounded in the truth. God's Word in community with God's people is what keeps you grounded in the truth. And our witness depends on our devotion to the apostles' teaching. But here's the second characteristic that I want us to see this morning of a Spirit-filled church loving relationships. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. Now, listen, I know that you see that word and you think, okay, where's the potluck? (laughs) Listen to me. This word, fellowship, means so much more than merely the, the non-Bible Bible things that Christians do together, like eating. Because that's what we tend to think. Like, we're going to watch the Super Bowl next Sunday. We're having a fellowship. Anything we're not doing, that, anytime we're doing something that doesn't involve studying the Bible, we just tack fellowship on it. Well, this is fellowship right now. <laughs> that's not the way it is in Scripture. This word has so much deeper meaning. It's often, in fact, translated in the New Testament, partnership. It means that the deep solidarity that develops when two or more people are pursuing the same goal. What's the goal that we're pursuing? Well, did you hear what we sang? 130, 140 people in this room singing, All I have is Christ, all I have is Christ. Praise the Lord, all I have is Christ. What is the goal that we're pursuing? We're pursuing Christ, which means that we have a deeper fellowship than any other people on the face of the planet. Because the Spirit is what unites us. We're not united by blood relation. We're not united by race relation. We're not united by, we all come from the same culture. You've already heard Dan up here talking from Michigan. I mean, I don't talk like him. We are united by the Gospel, by the Spirit indwelling us. That's where our fellowship comes from. And Paul says in Philippians chapter 1 verses 3 through 5, I thank my God because of your partnership or your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. We share the gospel, we share Christ, and that unites us. But here's what's fascinating to me. They devoted themselves to the fellowship I want you to think about that with me. What this means is that they made a commitment to relationships. They made commitments. They they did not think that relationships in the church are just going to happen automatically. They worked at building relationships. Why is this so important? Because listen... There is this huge misconception in the church that relationships are just supposed to happen automatically. That I'm just going to show up and these people are just going to like me and I'm going to like them. And I want you to understand something, church. Relationships have never been like that. And in this age, where there is so much division and there are so many things, that are working against healthy relationships, family breakdowns in the home, friendships are at an all-time low. You better believe that relationships are not going to come automatically. When I do premarital counseling, I always the first thing that couples have to do. Jake and Bethany, get ready for this because you. The first thing that couples have to do is they have to read an article called The Myth of Compatibility. Why do I make them read such an article? Because they're googly-eyed in love, and they think that they have found the perfect match, the person that is going to fit me like a glove. I could never imagine being in an argument with him. (laughs) And I just want to burst their bubble right off the bat. You know, I I just want, I'm the dream killer when it comes to premarital (laughs) counseling. And I I want them to understand, the article argues that because we're sinners, there's not a single person in the world that's truly compatible with me, right? Because I'm selfish. And and there, there's no one that fits me in that way. There, there's always going to be rough spots and, and, and seasons that are hard and difficult. And we want them to understand that. And so, listen, if, if, if the googly-eyed lover is not compatible with you, you better believe that this strange conglomeration of people is not compatible with you. This is not. That There is no church compatibility. There is not a church out there that is going to fit you perfectly. That You will never visit a church where you walk in and you go, I like everything about that church. No, I mean, some of you are going to go home today and you're going to say, I like that church, but the pastor's got that weird Alabama accent. And the person I sat next to, I don't know what they were wearing, but man, that perfume was strong. It stunk. I wish that kid would quit banging into my chair with his Tonka truck. <laughs> you know, like the, these are the things that, that are really happening. Relationships aren't easy. And, and listen to me, because this is really important. You don't need to be upset that relationships are difficult. You need to be happy that relationships are difficult because if you found the perfect church that fits you perfectly, you wouldn't grow there. You understand? You wouldn't grow. Do you know how you grow in the Bible? You don't grow in the Bible by sitting on a mountaintop having a devotional quiet time with God by yourself. That's not how you grow. You grow in the trenches. You grow through suffering. You grow through trials. You grow through miscommunication. You grow through conflict. That's how you grow. Don't expect things to just work out perfectly for you. It's never been that way. It's never going to be that way. When we run from devotion to fellowship, we are running from the means that God intends to use to grow us. To so understand what's at stake, if you don't want discomfort, you don't want growth. Because those are the conditions for it. Now this relationships, the relationships that they're building in this first church are profound. Look in verse 44. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were together. Meaning That's a word, and, and, and Luke here is just trying to, to emphasize that they were unified. They were together. They weren't divided. They were one. And they had all things in common. And yeah, he's talking about Personal possessions, not mandated by government, but voluntarily. They, they come together and they pool their resources together so that anybody in the congregation who has a need, they can, they can supply it. And you see that happening in verse 45. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. People have need. Nobody in this church of Jerusalem had needs because they were meeting them together. And day by day, attending the temple together... And breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Now I want you to notice that they're doing this every day. Day by day, they are living in communion with one another. They're attending the temple together. We're going to get to that in a moment, what that means. But they're also breaking bread in their homes. And they're receiving their food together with glad and generous hearts. They're eating together, they're living together, they're doing life together. You know what this looks like? Looks a lot like BFGs to me. I've had people say, Well, you know, Bible fellowship group, that's not in the Bible. I understand that, but this is in the Bible. This life where we're in homes and we're trying to be a part of each other's lives, that's in the Bible. I had somebody say to me recently, I need a church where I can get everything in Acts 2 done at one time a week. And I thought, what a sign of the way we think about things these days. The church is just another thing. I check off my list. Done. Church, done. Fellowship, done. Did all that. Had communion, done. Well, you can't get everything done in Acts 2 at one time per week because they're doing it day by day. They're living life together. This is a family. We, church, are a family. We're supposed to be a family. And the culture is not an excuse for us not becoming one. We have to overcome whatever's happening in the crooked generation because the Spirit of God is what reigns here. And so, what if it's hard? The Spirit of God can conquer any resistance. Here's the third characteristic joyful worship. Go back up to verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Listen, this isn't just any breaking of bread. There's an article in front of it. It is the breaking of bread and the prayers. It's a specific breaking of bread and a specific prayer. It's the Lord's Supper. He's describing worship. They were worshiping together. They were practicing a liturgy together. Now, you may be freaked out by that word. Liturgy. What does that even mean? And you may have noticed that in in your bulletins we've started incorporating that language. We have Ashland's Worship Liturgy. and I don't want you to be afraid of that word. I want you to understand that liturgy just simply means a set order for worship. That all the way back to the apostles, to this very first church, when the church would gather, they had a set order. They had set prayers and confessions and set rituals that they would observe together, like the Lord's Supper and Baptism. The point of a liturgy is simply to communicate to us all that we don't just get to make this up as we go. That we are a part of an apostolic tradition. And here we are 2,000 years down the road, but, but our service should still have continuity with the very first services that the apostles led. And notice that they're doing both small group ministry and large group, and you see that in verse 46, and day by day attending the temple together. They, so this was the church in Jerusalem, and at this time in history, those who had been converted to Jesus, they were still going to the temple. And I, I'm sure that they weren't participating in any sacrifices because they believed, we know from the apostles, that Jesus was the final sacrifice, but they would still gather with the Jews in Jerusalem to, to sing and to pray. They shared the same Old Testament Scriptures. But then notice that they wouldn't leave it there. They would immediately, or I don't know if it was immediately, but they would also go after that to their homes. So they would attend the temple together, and then breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. I imagine when they got to their homes is when their worship became more specifically Christ-centered, because not in the temple they weren't talking about Jesus. So these Christians were going home To deepen their worship. Verse 43, we see that there's awe, there's reverence to their worship. At the end of verse 46, we see that there's joy, there's gladness to their worship. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. It it wasn't something that was a weekly chore. It was something that they looked forward to. It was something that they couldn't wait to be a part of. I can't wait to be with God's people. I can't wait to worship with God's people. I don't want to miss worshiping with God's people. Because the Spirit-filled church loves to worship together. And then the final characteristic that I want us to see this morning is relentless witness. Look at verse 47. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now listen. Don't separate the result from everything that was happening in verses 40 through 46. This is this is to be read together. So this is really important because we live in this age of efficiency Where we don't really care what it takes to get people in the doors of the church as long as we can just get seats, fannies in the seats. That's all that matters. We just need more fannies in the seats and more money in the offering plate. It doesn't matter how in the world we get to that point. As long as we can get them in here, bribe them to come in, entertain them to come in, it doesn't matter. But our Lord has told us what we're supposed to do. We don't worship the God of efficiency. Jesus gave us the end goal. He also gave us the means. We don't get to make it up as we go. Verses 40-46, through this is the life that we are called to live as the Spirit-filled church. And it is also the way that God intends to grow His church. As this church was praising God, notice, they were having favor with all the people. That's unbelievers. That's people in their community. Because they're committed to the apostles' teaching. Because they're committed to relationships with one another. Because they are committed to joyful worship. And they're living in this deep, spirit-filled community. And the result is that the people around them are seeing what they're doing. And they're seeing what they have. And the people around them are saying, there's something different about these people. And we need to be a part of it. This kind of community is not natural. This kind of community can only be produced by the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We we have a Savior who died as atonement in our place to reconcile us to God and in the process of being reconciled to God by mercy alone because none of us deserve it. He also reconciles us to one another. That's not natural. This isn't a natural community. This isn't the Elks Club. This isn't your bowling team. This isn't the LaGrange Historical Society that won't let me do things at my historical home. I don't know why that slipped in there, but <laughs> this is Christ. This this is, church, listen, this is why there's never an excuse for you to not be able to be reconciled with somebody else that's in this room that's a part of this community. Because if our God can forgive us. For cosmic treason against him through the blood of Jesus Christ, you better believe you can forgive the person sitting next to you. This is how we can love our enemies and pray for those who are persecuting us. Because Jesus showed us the way, because the gospel's true. That's, how this, this, that's the foundation that this whole community is built upon. It is only on the gospel that we can do this. It is only in the power of the Holy Spirit. And when people begin to see that, they begin to see that this community is not like any other. This is our sign. Jesus told us that. You know how they're going to know your mind? By the way you love one another. Our sign is our love. We show the world our love, and then our world sees the gospel, and then we declare it to them, and they believe and join us. But uh, one more thing. I want you to notice how church-centered their evangelism strategy is. You might miss this. The first thing I want you to see is that in verse 41, they, they knew how many people were converted. About 3,000 souls. Now get down to verse 47. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. See, sometimes I think that we think and imagine the Christian life as just individual Christians just out there being apostles out in the community in the world. And that's not how the New Testament describes it. The apostles preach the gospel, and they organize churches, and the churches are handed the keys of the kingdom, the keys that Jesus gave to the apostles, the apostles give to the church. So this is not something we can do in isolation. To be saved in Acts 2 is to be added to the number of the church. When they are baptized, they are connected as members of the body of Christ in Jerusalem. That's what's going on. We don't delegate evangelism to parachurch organizations. Evangelism belongs to us. It belongs to the church. This is our mission. Our current culture presents such an opportunity to us, church. Our neighbors are lonely people. Our people... Our neighbors, the people that live in our community, are are disheartened by divisions and suffering from, from family dysfunction and looking for friends. And we have the opportunity to show them the power of the gospel, to show them the deep love and fellowship that comes from our Savior, we have the opportunity to show them, to bear witness to them that there's a kingdom coming. And you can taste it right now. And that kingdom is going to replace every other power and every other order in this universe. And that kingdom is going to be forever. And that kingdom will be lived under the reign of Jesus. And there will be no more dysfunction or family breakdown. There will be no more loneliness. There will be no more sin and rebellion. There will be no more death and isolation. There will only be the people of God worshiping God's King Jesus Christ forever. Let's pray together.